when people come to the Word of God, they look at it primarily three different ways. Either they see nothing and get nothing out of it, or they see perhaps a colorless story of possibly some morals and stories about Jesus, a nice man. Maybe we can adopt some value from it, but they see no power in it. But to the believer in Jesus Christ, who has the Holy Spirit in them, the Bible explodes in a spectrum of color and of power. It's a living and active book. Now, I know you're all sophisticated adults, but I spent years teaching children. So I'm going to use a little bit of a child's illustration for you. This is my special pastor uh, holy Bible. Don't even ask. You can't look at it. But in this Bible, it shows us the different viewpoints of people. For instance, some people look at the Bible, and again, like some of my professors over at Northern years ago, this is what they see. Absolutely nothing. Not, not a value, no, nor of use to read, even in some kind of historical sense. Other people would see some kind of, again, some moral teaching, some outline of the gospel stories, the Christmas story, it's rather quaint, they'll celebrate it with you. The miracles and all the kinds of things that it shows there in the New Testament. These, again, provide perhaps some moral teaching that would be good for all people to follow. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, which I became as a 19-year-old after my first year at Northern, I had my old Bible given to me with my gold embossed name on the bottom of it. And I read that Bible. I actually read it. I was searching for an argument for the existence of God that I could accept so I'd be willing to change my life. The day came when I read the Bible and God just opened it up to me. I became a believer in Jesus Christ. He convinced me that Jesus was true. And even though it was the same book that I saw these little outlines of the gospel in, it had my golden boss name. It had the water stains from when I dropped it in a puddle on the way to confirmation class one day. But this book just exploded out to me in full vivid color. The gospel stories jumped out at me. It was a living, breathing book, which is what the Bible is. Today, I'm going to be talking about meditation, the key to walking with God. When I look down in the history of the great men of God, there's a consistent theme. The Bible had a major part of their life. It was a cornerstone of their being. They studied it, they memorized it, they meditated on it, and they prayed. And when I look at that great word, let's look at some passages, just a few, just a handful of them. Psalm 42, written by the sons of Korah. Look, listen to the visual imagery it evokes in your mind. The word picture it gives. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Here's a man who thought of, the, of God's word like water for someone who's dying of thirst. David says essentially the same thing in Psalm 63, where he says, earnestly I seek you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. In Job, who had these terrible trials, in the midst of these trials, he writes, I have treasured your word, the word of your mouth, more than my daily bread. 
Jeremiah, a man who had a very, very hard life from beginning to end. There is essentially no joy in some earthly sense. He was rejected by everybody, but he had a purpose that he played. And I'm sure God will richly reward him, has richly reward him. But he writes, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. I've known people to go through very, very difficult things. I'm sure a lot of you have. And yet they had a joy that could only come from an eternal being, from God. And it comes through that word that we learn about God. In Romans 15, Paul commenting on these things, he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach you. So through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. <clears throat> God is the God of hope, and he gives us hope, and he wants us to live in that hope day by day. The word that I want to focus on today, again, is meditation. And to do that, I'd like you to turn to Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm 1, and it kicks off the whole Psalter, in it we see a contrast between godly people and ungodly people. He shows us what a godly person does and what an ungodly person does and the reward of a godly person. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. That's what a godly person does not do. In the next verse, we see what he does do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's what he does do. And what is the fruit of that? What is the result of that for that person who meditates in that word? And I'll explain what meditate really means in a few minutes. What happens is you become like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. In the spiritual sense of how many difficulties you may have in life, I don't know. But if you do what God tells you to do, you will be a success in your spiritual life and you will leave fruit behind you. So we look at that word meditate. What is biblical meditation? You know, we're confused by all the Eastern mysticism that has come in. As I was reading the Bible as a young man in northern Michigan, I thought, if this doesn't work out, if I can't make sense, I was going to read the entire Bible, then I'd go to what my friends were doing, going into Buddhism, which is a kind of a, well, it's kind of a designer religion, if you know something about it. You basically can be a pantheist, or you can be an atheist, an atheist and not believe in any God, just some kind of nature superpower. And they believe in meditation, but it's a very different kind of meditation than the Bible describes. The Old Testament word for meditation in Hebrew is the word, well, and I'm going to pronounce it with a guttural pronunciation. It's not only a different language with different spelling of words, it's also a difference in pronunciation. So you'd have this guttural sound. Ha-ha, ha-ha, I can't hardly say it. It is found in Joshua at 1.8. It means to moan or to growl, to hum. It also means to plan, to plot, to advise. And it also has an addition, additional component of its meaning, to do. As is explained as you read the later part of, of Joshua 1.8. It's a view to doing something about it. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, it's the same kind of definition, exactly. Uh, the New Testament word for meditating in Greek is melatao. It means to give a care for, to ponder, to attend to, to contemplate, to think about, but also to do. Hence, when you, you see in 1 Timothy 4.15, where Paul writes that word down there, 
the translators translate it correctly in multiple books, multiple versions. The ESV says, practice these things. Though it could have said, meditate on these things, but they understood that this concept of Greek meditation includes the application, so they correctly translate it, practice these things, give yourself wholly over to them. The NIV says, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly over to them. The NASB says, um, call the words, be careful, take, take pains to do these things, and I like the continued line, be absorbed in them. All those are correct translations of the Greek word for meditate because the English word holds in its uh, def definition somewhat of what the definition for meditate is in Greek and Hebrew, but it doesn't hold the whole definition, such as to practice, to do, to take pains to, to be absorbed in. Now, the lesson of the cow. And I just got a very interesting lecture from one of your members about cows in between the services. I learned a few more things about them that I hadn't known before I did this sermon. But I grew up with cows, so I know a little bit about them. And cows do what they call rumination, and that's a synonym for meditation. Here we have our typical dairy cow. If you've ever watched them and been around them, as I have, they get up in the morning, they go out in the field. Well, they're probably already there. My grandfather would have them in the barn and then bring them out to the field. They would lower their head, and they would mow the grass till about 10 o'clock. They were on a mission. Eat, don't bother me kind of like your, maybe your teenage son was. Then after about 10 o'clock, they get up and go to a shady place and lie down, and they began to do what's called chewing on the cud. And this may not be a delicate thing to discuss right before lunch, but here I go anyway. A, a, a ruminating animal is called that because it has four stomachs, and more specifically, four compartments of a stomach. And so what that animal does is grabs that grass, puts it down in the first rumen, its stomach, its rumen means stomach, and then regurgitates it back up again and chews on it. It pushes its molars down on those green uh, blades of grass with its salivary uh, glands and functioning and gets the nutrients out of those, out of those grass uh, eat, food that it's eaten. And then it does the same thing all over again. Sends it back down to stomach two, regurgitates it, and does this four times. By the fourth stomach and regurgitation, it's pretty much crushed every last nutrient that that blade of grass has in it. That's a synonym for meditation. Let me go back again. Meditation to the spirit is the same as digestion is to the body. When that animal chews that nutrient and it goes into the body, he becomes, it becomes part of him. It's absorbed into his bloodstream. When we take the word of God the word of Christ, the spirit of Christ works in us to take that nutrient of scripture, that spiritual nutrient, that spiritual food that Job calls the Bible food, likened to food, and Paul likens these things, reminds us of these things in Romans 5, uh, to food and to drink. It takes these things and puts them in our spiritual bloodstream. So as the cow sort of becomes what it eats, you and I become what we think and what we meditate on. It's our spiritual soul food. Hence the lesson of the cow. Meditation to the spirit is the same as digestion is to the body. The object of meditation is always God's word. As I looked at what my friends were involved in, their meditation coming from the East has to do with 
of emptying your mind, of focusing on your breath. Uh, that's one major part of, of meditation. I've, through my research, I discovered there's about 200 different ways to meditate. But biblical meditation, and that's what we're studying here, we're studying meditation like the FBI would study a dollar. We all know that illustration. The FBI does not teach its agents about counterfeit dollars and what they look like. It teaches their agents about what a real dollar looks like. And like that, I'm going to teach you what real biblical medication is about. Now, Psalm 138, again, talks about the word that is, uh, that is life. J John uh, 663, or John had just healed 6,000, or fed 6,000 people. And he says to them, the words I've spoken to today are spirit and they are life. The word itself is spirit and life. Later on in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. And then my word is the life. Hebrews 4.12 said, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It, do, it penetrates the dividing soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible is unlike any book ever written because of the author that wrote it. The Bible is not magical. God is powerful. When we take that word and put our faith in that word and do what that word says, we see God reveal himself to us. Now, some Eastern mystics will focus on what their breath or just empty their mind. Not a good thing to do, in my opinion. But they focus on breath, and I thought, you know, that compares somewhat to biblical meditation. One of my favorite words in the Bible, and it's in everybody's statement of faith, including yours, is the verse 2 Timothy 3.16. It has that wonderful word in it, theopanoustos, which means God breathes. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God breathes. Jesus in Matthew 4, 4, for man does not live in bread alone, but in every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. All scripture is God breathed, and probably a lot of you could finish the rest of it, and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the power of God's word, this God breathed word. Now, when we think about the breath of God, what are the things does the Bible say God breathes into? He breathed his spirit into believers. He breathed into, in, into a pile of muddied, kind of fake, uh, 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 sort of sculpted out of the dirt. And the word for dirt in Hebrew is Adam. It means ground. And he creates this man, but the man is just ground. And what does he do? He breathes into the man the man becomes alive. Adam, the ground, becomes Adam, the man. All scripture is God breathed. God makes that man come alive. God makes the word come alive in us. So that begs the question, then how do we meditate? I know those who are involved in some Eastern mystical things. There's the, the clothing you would wear and this incense and the focusing or emptying the mind. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation begins and ends in the Word of God, the living, breathing, active Word of God, activated by your faith. First thing to do, of course, is to memorize the Word. How can you think about something you can't remember? Here are several uh, suggestions coming from the Navigators, a great organization that really emphasizes biblical memory. The way to do it is to say the address of the verse before and after each time you read it. I would ask kids sometimes, where does the verse live? In other words, what is his address? 
So if I were to look at John 6, 63, I would say what I just said, the address, and I, say, I would say, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life, John 6, 63. That imprints the passage in your mind. Second suggestion the navigators say is to write the verse down, thinking about each word. I would write each word of the verse down on a card as I'm reading it from the scriptures. Now, of course, I can do it electronically, electronically through a computer. And you think about what each word means. The words I've spoken today, what words were Jesus speaking? Go back and look at John 6. Uh, our spirit and their life. Think about, you know, look at the word spirit, spirit, breath, wind. What does that word mean? Look at the word, think about the word life. What does that mean? That means eternal life, life with God. Think about each word and then practice quoting it. I like to quote it aloud. Memory experts would tell you, if you want to remember something, and I, we always make fun of old people. Somebody would tell me something like my wife, who was married to an old guy. I want you to go get some eggs and some milk and some bacon. And the old guy might respond, let's see, you want me to get some eggs and some milk and some bacon? Yes. And I would get a smiley face. She was a teacher. You practice quoting it. You say it out loud because if you say it out loud, that goes into another part of your brain and increases the likelihood that, you're, that you will remember it. One little thing, I teach classes about memorization. And everybody does this. You're sitting in your room, let's say the living room, and you get up and you think of something you want to get. And you get up and you walk into the other room. What happens? What was it I was supposed to pick up? But here's, a, here's an interesting thing, how memory works, how God created us. If you walk back in the room and sit down where the thought first occurred to you, within a moment or two, if you relax, what you thought, what you forgot will come back to you because memory is so associated to physical place. That's how memory experts work in something called uh, memory palaces, if you're familiar with that. So here's the key. If I'm thinking, I want to get up and go get a, let's say, a Verner's. I would say out loud, even to the point of embarrassing myself, I'm going to get some Verner's. So that increases the likelihood when I walk into the kitchen that I'm going to actually remember, oh yeah, I'm going to get some Verner's. Memory experts will tell you that. Secondly, fourthly, meditate on the word throughout the day. I have this scripture that I memorize, memorize verses every week, and I think about them. I put them in places where I'll see them regularly so they'll keep them in mind. And when I have a moment on a car drive or something or on a walk, I'll think about that verse. And finally, share the verse with others. It's really tough to, to remember a verse and then come up and tell you what I just remembered. It adds a, an extra level of stress and difficulty. So I can think of a passage like Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15, 13. It's harder for me to do that here than it would be if I was back in my office. So you have to know it at a deeper level to share it with someone else. It's a common a teaching technique. Also to learn the word, particularly this is God's word. And you know, I want to pray and I want my prayers answered. I'm betting you do too. So why not take what God says in his word and pray it back to them? This is what I, what I was taught by my mentors and by my teachers. So I take that Bible verse and I break it up and I personalize it and make it into a prayer, like Romans 15, 13 again. May the God of hope, oh God, you are the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Oh God, I pray, I need your joy, God. Give me your joy. 
oh God of hope. Oh God, give me your peace. Make your peace come in me. And God, I want to overflow with joy. Give me that overflowing joy, God, that comes from your Holy Spirit. Take a verse and personalize it and make it into a prayer. There's a story about a great man of God, George Miller, uh, who lived and worked England in the early 20th century, who ran a series of orphanages, a great need of England at that time, and was feeding up to 10,000 kids a day. He also was a pastor of a very large church. And in his memoirs, he, at the end of his life, had gone through the Bible 100 times, doing this thing he's going to describe right here. Miller says, I began to meditate in the second line on the New Testament early in the mornings. Invariably, I found that after so many minutes of meditation, my soul is guided to confession, or to give thanks, or to intercede, or to make a request. So even when you couldn't say that I'd given myself to prayer, but rather to meditation, nevertheless, it turned out that almost immediately the meditation turned into a prayer. He would pray through his word. You know, he never asked for money, rather extraordinary thing, and yet God supplied him, let's say the word, miraculously, at least in a providential sense, a miraculous providential of food coming to him to feed these thousands of kids that he successfully did for years. Another way to learn scripture, in fact, you don't really know the word until you do it, until you apply it to your life. The verses that God used to save me were Matthew 6, 31 and 33, which says, don't worry about what you eat or drink. Aware, for the pagans run after all things, all these things, and God knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness in your life, and God will give you these as well. And I wasn't looking for a free lunch. I was looking to see God work in my life. And I thought, wouldn't that be great if that were true? That I could see God work in the here and now. I wouldn't have to wait till I'm dead and gone and then and there. And that would be a little too late to find out, oh, you are real. But when you apply the word of God, and God just taught me the gospel through people that had witnessed to me as a youngster, and I remember the gospel. For me, it was a very dramatic moment, June 16th, 7.30 at night, 1970, while I was sitting in my dad's easy chair at 1711 Montana Avenue in Gladstone, Michigan. I remember it distinctly. Um, when I began to apply that word to seek first his kingdom, not my kingdom, as one pastor once uh, said in a sermon I heard, in order for his kingdom to, to come, my kingdom needs to what? It needs to go. If you want God's kingdom, then you need to get rid of yours. And if you want to seek God's righteousness, you need to get rid of your idea of what is right and wrong. I didn't come to Christ with the idea that I was some great sinner, but of course I was. But within 60 seconds after becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, I immediately felt, wow, this Bible is true. I need to change my life. I started doing what it said. And when I started doing what it said, guess what happened? God showed up. He supplied my needs. I ended up about two and a half weeks later on the deck of an oar boat going across Lake Superior, even coming here to Marquette. And God, through that job, enabled me to pay for all my schooling for the next uh, seven, eight years. I worked one year in between school and seminary. It was by the application of the word that I really learned the value of the word. You don't know it really until you do it. Meditation ultimately really is a deep communion and fellowship with God. Again, you're not learning about God. You're not learning just what God wants you to do. What you are doing when you're meditating and praying through his word is you are actually 
communicating and communing and fellowship with God at that very moment. It's a supernatural experience <clears throat> that brings joy to every heart of a person that I know. I've known people given over to melancholy and, and, uh, and discouragement and depression who would just take the Bible and just sit and for a while and just pray and meditate on those verses. And as one uh, famous preacher said, I would get up as one refreshed from a night of sleep. It gives you a peace. Meditation is communion with God, not simply talking about, but actually meeting with God. And make his word the last word. Now, going back to the idea of communion, there's a famous Christian by the name of Marquis de Rente of many, several centuries ago, who told his servant, I'm gonna go into my study and I'm going to just commune with God to pray and read his word. And I want you to come and let me know when 30 minutes are up so I can go to my office. So after 30 minutes, his servant knocked on the door and went in there, and there was Durante praying, reading his word in deep thought, and he didn't want to disturb him, so he left. Came back 30 minutes later, in other words, 60 minutes later from the time he started, and again he saw Durante praying and communing with God, and again he didn't want to disturb him. Finally, after 90 minutes, he thought, well, the, the boss needs to go to his office. Sir, I'm sure you want to go to your office now, and Durante gets up, my how fast 30 minutes goes by when you're communing with God. It's like time is irrelevant when you're having fellowship with God. Here's word, the last word. I read a book on meditation written by a navigator who had been a naval officer. And he talked about at night on ship, they would show movies to entertain guys on, on a weekend or something. And every morning when he went to the mess hall, to the galley, the first topic in everybody's mind was what they saw in the picture last night. And it put something in his head. When you go see this movie and that's in your brain, you're thinking about it, and then you go to sleep, that's what you think about the next morning. So he thought, what if I do this with the Word of God? If you, if you take a verse that you're thinking about or meditating on, which I've done numerous times in my life, is I take that Word and I put it in places where I can see it, and I think about a clause or a sentence or just a simple thing and I put in my mind right before I go to bed. So in the watches of the night, like the people of God write in the Psalms and the watches of the night, I would meditate and think about what God is telling me through that verse. In the morning, I'd wake up and think about, and usually come up with a different and newer and deeper insight into what I had tried to memorize and do the night before. That's how God made our minds. The idea of, of uh, sleeping on it has a very practical effect. Your brain calms down, and the mind just kind of organizes itself even while you're sleeping. And usually when the next morning, and we all experience this, you come up with something you hadn't thought of the night before. Make his word the last word. Conclusion is, if you want to have the kind of spiritual life that David, the sons of Korah, the writers of the Psalms, and Job and Jeremiah did, if you want to have the kind of life that George Miller did, that great pastor, then learn to meditate on God's word. Learn to do what God tells you to do. There's all those verses I quoted from 1 Timothy 4.15 in the different versions. The ESV, uh, practice these things. Uh, the NASB, uh, take pains and be absorbed in these things of God. The NIV is, be diligent in these things. In other words, bring meditation to its full completion. Your obedience to the word of God. And when you do that, Jesus is going to reveal himself to you. And you're going to be, like it says in Psalm 1, 
You will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever you do for God is going to ultimately prosper. Please pray. May the God of hope fill you with joy, all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.